you know, it's funny as, as Dave was up here talking about, you know, their Puritan conference experience and how the, um, I was so grateful that we be a church that is always in the word and preaching the word. Um, <clears throat> and today we're doing more of a lecture. Uh, so I was like, oh, of all times you're saying this, like I'm not really like in the word today. You know, we're, we're, we're uh, doing a lecture kind of series. And, um, but as you all know, it's Reformation Month, and we'll be covering aspects of the Reformation all this month. My task this morning is to go over the, the forerunners of the Reformation or pre-reformers. Um, and I want to make clear from the beginning that, that even though we are uh, going through the Reformation this month and, and looking at these things, we are not uh, exalting men nor, nor the accomplishments of men. <clears throat> uh, we are, what is on display is the greatness and faithfulness of our God. And, and to study church history is to study the faithfulness of God to his church by giving it certain men at certain times these desire for his word. <clears throat> uh, the topic of the forerunners highlights that fact and why we never want to replace uh, preaching with, with, with lectures nor scripture with anything else for that matter. It's very important that the church understands and knows its own history. Uh, this history is rich and, and full of great teachings and encouragements uh, as well as exhortations and warnings that we are to heed today. To disregard church history would to be miss out on the richness of our heritage that belongs to us. Um, and for most of us, you know, <clears throat> I know for me for a long time, um, and I'm no historian or anything like that, but um, I do love church history. I love studying it. And, um, but for most of us, we, we understand, okay, we had the believers in the book of Acts. We had Pentecost. And um, then somewhere along the line, maybe Emperor Constantine made, made Christianity the, the state religion, and then somehow the Catholic Church got a pope and um, got really off track, and then Martin Luther came about and fixed all of that. And here we are today, and that's church history for us. Um, <clears throat> but as we really dive into it, we see uh, just how rich and, and full, and just see that everything that was put in place, like like a master chess player, placing these pieces in place for the perfect time. Um, that is our God. And, and some may ask, you know, where was God during times like the Middle or Dark Ages? Um, some may feel as though God was absent during those times, only to act when Martin Luther was ready. <clears throat> um, we commonly think of the start of the Reformation to be all that, uh, that Saints Day on October 30, 31st on 1517 when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis on the door of Wittenberg. But the start of the Reformation should not be thought of as one certain day. As a Master Seminary's uh, theological, historical theological professor, Nate Business, puts it, the Reformation was more of a process that took place over centuries of time and then culminates in the 16th century. So make no mistake, uh, th Throughout the centuries, through the Middle Ages, and even though it was a dark time, God was still working and by no means surpassed or, or was 
uh, turn a deaf ear ever in the time of his church. And while Martin Luther was no doubt an instrumental figure in the Reformation, he was one who stood on the shoulders of giants, as it is said, uh, men who were equally used by God to be the sparks that would later ignite the flames of the Reformation, uh, men who held, like him, an, an unwavering commitment to the Word of God. Uh, now, <clears throat> we could find figures all throughout history and all throughout the centuries uh, to go over, and uh, I didn't want us to be here till 3 today, so... Uh, I, I picked just some key figures that, that, for me, really stand out and really contri contributed to the Reformation uh, before it happened. And uh, there's other, plenty of other people out there to mention. Uh, so um, for those of you who are church history buffs, I don't want to, I'm just pre-warning you so that afterwards, like, I can't believe you didn't mention so-and-so. And, -so. and um, I know that's probably going to happen. <clears throat> but... Uh, the doctrinal truths that the reformers held to were likewise held throughout all church history, all the way back to the apostolic fathers and ancient church fathers. Um, so long before Luther in the 16th century were those who not only recognized but stood up to the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church. So uh, let us begin and, and let us pray before we, we move any further. Father, we, we humbly come before you and we just thank you for this opportunity um, to learn about your faithfulness, God. That, that is what church history is. It's a history lesson on your faithfulness and commitment to your church, even in the midst when it has gone completely astray and against your word. Lord, you are faithful. So, Lord, uh, we pray that um, we don't walk out or exalting man, but exalting you. Man is nothing. <laughs> Apart from the vine, Lord Jesus, we could do nothing. So, Lord, uh, be glorified in this moment. Be exalted. May Christ be exalted. Be with me. And uh, thank you for this undeserved privilege to be up here with your people. We ask and praise in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so, we'll start in the late 1100s. Uh, there came about a merchant from southern region of, of France, wherever Phil is, I'd like to give him props, um, from the city of Lyon, uh, whose name was Waldo. And he lived approximately from 1140 to 1218. Um, some say that he was distraught about the sudden death of a friend which he witnessed, uh, who then sought, some feedback, don't go to this side. Um, uh, he was distraught by the death of his friend. He was seeking to find purpose and meaning and didn't know where to go. He hears the word of God being faithfully preached and he is influenced by this preaching and then hears a story of a fourth century uh, Christian who, name of, by the name of Alexius who gave up, who likewise was converted and gave up all his worldly possessions for the pursuit of, of proclaiming Christ to the world. Um, feeling convicted for his love of money, Waldo did the same and sold all of his belongings in order to likewise live a life completely devoted to Christ. And again, the, the influence and encouragement that this man had of church history. Um, so I think we have, there's one uh, uh, quote up here. Um, now I don't know, how, you know, sometimes they have pictures and, and of these 
guys from 1100 and everything like that. I'm not sure how they get these pictures and, and uh, how they know what they look like. I think they said, this is what a common Frenchman looked like in the 1100s, do that. Um, so uh, not sure, but do we have a, a <clears throat> first, yeah, there he is. That's the best we got. That's the best Google could give me. Um, so uh, go to the next slide there. He was convicted and said, no man can serve two masters, God and mammon, that you may learn to place your hope in God and not in riches. Um, that's a statue there of Waldo at the Luther Monument in Worms, Germany. Um, so Waldo, now committed to a life of poverty in order to serve Christ, Waldo began preaching around Lyon and proclaiming the word of God. And so dedicated and passionate is Waldo's preaching that he began to have followers that also sold all their worldly possessions and followed him and joined the cause of preaching the gospel, preaching the word of God. Um, this was kind of a new movement that these men would, would be outside, would be preaching not within the uh, chapels or churches and would be also preaching in the language of the people where people could actually understand them. Crazy concept, right? Uh, preach in a language that people can understand. <clears throat> uh, they, were for, be, they would be referred to as the poor men of Lyon or, or the poor of Lyon. And I uh, want to make this clear. Waldo did not believe that poverty was a necessity for salvation, nor added anything to one's justification. He, being just so convicted of his love of money, love of worldly possessions, uh, cast it aside just so he can be not distracted uh, in the pursuit of Christ. Um, Waldo was characterized by a love for the scriptures, especially the teachings of Christ in the gospel accounts. He was consumed with a hunger for the word and would speak of them often with his acquaintances. Now, this is important, and we need to remember this because we'll be coming back to this uh, thought throughout this sermon. His conviction and belief that the Word of God was sufficient and powerful in salvation led Waldo to translate the Bible, New Testament, uh, with the aid of other priests, from the Latin Vulgate into French. So there were, and, and you know, we commonly think of you know, guys like John Calvin and things like that who, who are doing translations, or we think of Tyndale, who would way later come, come about. But we see in the 1100s, we see these, these men such as, such as Waldo to uh, a desire to get the Word of God into the language of, of the people and what she was preaching to. <clears throat> um, at this time, Mass and any kind of sermon was done in Latin, um, which no one could understand. Uh, but despite this, the Word of God was heard nonetheless from these poor men of Lyon, who could, would be later called Waldensians after uh, Waldo himself. Uh, once the clergy kind of gained knowledge of, of the Waldensians moving, these poor men of Lyon and, and what they were doing, um, they were denounced. And not wanting to be seen as a heretical group, uh, the, these men went to be sanctioned as an official order of the Catholic Church. Uh, there is no other church at this time. It, it is only the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and this was no easy task. And so they, they, they traveled to Rome. Um, they're denied their sanction after a mock hearing and ordered to discontinue preaching publicly. Waldo, however, believing that God has called him to do this work, uh, continues to preach publicly as well as translate scripture in the language of the people. It is recorded that he quotes uh, Peter in Acts 529, 
we must obey God rather than man. And historians believe it is from here on out that he is referred to as Peter Waldo. <clears throat> uh, due to the Waldensians' commitment to preaching and teaching the word of God, they were fiercely persecuted by the Roman Catholic Church. And, and, and being so committed to the word of God and having that, uh, that conviction that the word of God was the instrument to change lives and bring them uh, people to salvation would they would have these camps and, and, and every now and again uh, the clergy would find out where they were where they were doing uh, committing these crimes by proclaiming the gospel and they would they would go in and, and destroy their camps and grab their writings arrest them and and they would destroy all the writings burn all their writings and so what they would do is have pockets of them memorize large portions of the Bible, word by word, so that when their writings were destroyed and they were scattered, they had a spot where they could reconvene and they had, okay, you had Jeremiah, you had the book of Revelation, you had this, let's, let's come together and rewrite everything that was destroyed. Uh, you talk about a commitment to the word of God. Uh, very convicting when, when you think about it. Some serious commitment there to the Word of God. Some things that they rejected were the claims uh, of a, any claims to authority besides the Scriptures. They rejected all mediators between God and man except the man Christ Jesus. Uh, though Mary was venerated a little bit in, in their in their group, uh, they rejected the doctrine that only a priest could hear confession and argued that all believers were call, qualified. They rejected purgatory and thus rejected indulgences and prayers for the dead. They believed the only scripture sanctioned sacraments were baptism and communion. They rejected the church's em emphasis on fast and feast days. They uh, rejected the priestly monastic uh, caste system. They rejected the veneration of relics and pilgrimage and the use of holy water. Uh, they rejected the Pope's claim to authority over earthly rulers. And they eventually rejected the apostolic succession of the Pope. So, <clears throat> Waldo was, of course, excommunicated from the church by Pope Lucius III in 1184, and in 1229, the Catholic Church officially condemns any types of their translations from the Latin Vulgate, and any transla translation from the Latin Vulgate at all. <clears throat> Historians are not sure exactly what happened to Peter Waldo. No details are given concerning his death. Um, he just disappeared which leaves historians to ask the question, where's Waldo? <laughs> I had to, it was there, you guys were all thinking it, and I know. I got it out of our system now, let's focus. So, uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church was, was unable to extinguish the Waldensian movement completely. And, and over 300 years later, it's when the reformers come about and, and certain reformers from Geneva and Switzerland go down to France and they meet some Waldensians and they, they go over their, their beliefs and what they're teaching and the Waldensians are saying, hey, we're, we're brothers here. We're, let's join this movement. We're not at odds. This is what we've been doing for, you know, we were doing it before it was cool. So uh, they, they, they uh, 
become like-minded in their theology and, and they become a, a, a very valuable movement, not, even, not just in the Reformation time, but before, and we'll, we'll see that uh, going forward. So fast forward to roughly 150 years from the Waldensian movement over to England, we have uh, John Wycliffe, who was commonly called the, the morning star of the Reformation. Um, I think there's a picture we have of, of Wycliffe there, the morning star of the Reformation. I have no idea if that's what he looked like. Um, <clears throat> but he, he was around 324 to 384, and uh, Wycliffe receives the title of the morning star of the Reformation, primarily because of his position in the uh, scholarly academia. See, you have something, someone like Waldo, who, even though he was not a you know, peasant or anything like that, um, he was what you would maybe call middle class. Um, he was not trained in academia. He was not in any kind of schooling or anything like that. From now, we have Wycliffe, who is someone who is trained in, in um, Oxford. And, and from Wycliffe on, uh, you have every, every person from him on out, as far as significant figures in the Reformation, come up in um, some type of scholastic uh, university. Um, men like Luther and Calvin and, and Knox, these were all great scholars at their time. So from here, here on out, we will have Reformation happening at the highest level of academia. And that's why Wycliffe is commonly referred to as the morning star of the Reformation. Um, as I said before, he, he attended Oxford University, where he most likely trained for the priesthood. Uh, by 1367, he obtained his doctrine of divinity and became Oxford's most celebrated philosopher and theologian. Uh, Wycliffe began to notice just how far astray the church had gone. He saw the corruption of the majority of the clergy, in which some had mistresses and illegitimate children and why others acted more like politicians and landowners. Uh, Wycliffe opposed the church in, in many typical areas in which most reformer, reformers found themselves at odds with at the Catholic Church. Some of these areas were the following. Uh, he affirmed sola scriptura, that scriptures alone were sufficient for all things in a matter of the church and individual living, and that they were the highest authority of the church. He said of the scriptures, um, I think we have that on a quote there. Holy Scripture is the highest authority for every believer, the standard of faith, and the foundation for reform. He was uh, very much in opposition of, of the papacy. He held that it was Christ alone who was the head of the church, and he rejected the celibacy of the clergy and taught that they could marry. He denied baptism and generation, which is basically baptism was necessary for salvation. He denied transubstantiation, the belief that, that the bread and, and wine actually transformed into the physical body and blood of Christ during, uh, during taking it. <clears throat> uh, he, he was opposed to, to the Crusades, which he lived on the outset of, um, and the use of indulgences. Wycliffe's convictions over such things were due to his studies of, of the teachings of Scripture that did not align with the traditions of man. Uh, that arose in the Roman Catholic Church at this time. And where Wycliffe really had a lot of influence is because he became the advisor of King Edward III and was instrumental in liberating England's tribute tax to Rome. 
if you want to get in good with government, you just got to figure a way to save them money. So um, he, he, he gives a theological treatise that made an, a, uh, an argument that freed England from Rome's dominion. Uh, obviously, this did not go over well with Rome, uh, but Wycliffe had, was under royal protection from England. In 1376, he began to, began to criticize the clergy of the church, stating that wealth and political power had so corrupted the church that a drastic reform was necessary, that the church should return to poverty and simplicity of apostolic times. So he's, again, warning style of the Reformation. He's already stay, saying that there, this is no easy task. This is no light task. The church needs to be reformed from the inside out. <clears throat> uh, he referred to the pope and papacy as Antichrist, um, which had that in common with Luther. He held that it was the Bible, not the church, should be the only rule of faith. And uh, we have another quote of Wycliffe's, I believe it says, uh, the gospel alone is sufficient to rule lives of Christians every, everywhere. Any additional rules made to govern men's conduct added nothing to the perfection already found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, end quote. Uh, his belief and trust in the sufficiency of the Word of God was shown through his efforts to translate the Bible from the New Test Testament from Latin into the Eng English language. Again, we have this emphasis on the Word of God being translated into the language of the common people. In uh, 1377, Wycliffe's accusations and teachings got him in hot water with church authorities and could have resulted in his arrest, if not worse, had he not been under the protection of, of uh, John of Gaunt, who was a younger son of, of King Edward III. And uh, John of Gaunt was not necessarily a godly man, but he admired Wycliffe and, and uh, liked him. And the answer is, uh, and he is, if I, I'm sure Robin will be fact-checking me on some of this stuff here, I'm talking about England, but uh, I believe he is the ancestor of today's royal family, um, not Wycliffe, the John of Gaunt. Um, so he was, however, put on, on trial on multiple occasions and dragged into the Roman Catholic Cathedral of Canterbury. He was forced to defend himself, but instead of defending himself, he hurls accusations at the Archbishop of Canterbury concerning the Catholic Church's violation of Scripture's clear teachings. Uh, Wycliffe was, was able to escape harsh persecution due to his royal protection. Um, for that reason and another, the, the Wycliffe at the time was um, alive during the West Schism, um, which I'm not going to go too much into, but basically there was essentially three popes at this time anathematizing one another and cursing one, condemning one another. You've got one in France and one in Rome and one in Constantinople. And so the papacy is a mess. And, and Wycliffe is pointing at it, saying, look, you know, the papacy is corrupt. It's, it's just a, a position of, of power, of politics. So um, because of that and because of his royal um, protection, Wycliffe didn't wasn't, wasn't killed, um, wasn't fiercely persecuted a lot. Um, he also had royal protection from, the, the, uh, from Queen Anne, who also, also highly admired Wycliffe and protected him. Um, <clears throat> but Wycliffe and his followers were commonly known as Lollards. And 
No one knows exactly why they were referred to as lollards. They think it's m mostly due to because it comes from the Dutch word mumbler. And um, it was most likely a, a um, insult that these people, these lollards, these mumblers of the gospel who are out there singing and, and mumbling the gospel and, and preaching the word of God. Um, but they embraced it. Um, <clears throat> so uh, they had written their own tracks and would write out uh, portions of scripture to, to hand out freely. And um, they all, all likewise kind of lived in poverty as well. Um, and they would do things to make ends meet, sell, you know, uh, make things and sell them. But when it came to the word of God and tracks, they said that this is free for all people. And they spend a lot of the time handing out their own tracts. So again, emphasis on the, on the word of God. Um, it is believed that Wycliffe died of a stroke in, in 1384, a little over 30 years after his death. He was condemned as a heretic at the Council of Constance. And uh, 14 and 15, uh, actually, sorry, 1428, Pope Martin V had Wycliffe's bones dug up and burned to show him. Um, but this was, this was pretty common back then. You know, we, we couldn't get him here in this life, but what we'll do is we'll um, dig up his bones and, and we'll put it on display and we'll burn them as an example. Uh, this, is, this is his future now. This is what lays ahead of him now. And so that was kind of their way of, of um, claiming him to be a heretic. Uh, so I, I mentioned Queen Anne, who was an admirer of Wycliffe. Uh, she was a Bohemian princess from Prague, and her royal marriage to King Richard II of England in 1382 brought her to England, where she was exposed to the writings and teachings of Wycliffe. And so encouraged by Wycliffe's writings, um, she, would, she encouraged students from Bohemia, from Prague, to come to Oxford to learn and study there. And uh, this is significant because these students would return to these teachings to Bohemia where they influenced one young priest and professor at the University of Prague named Jan Hus. Uh, not much is known about Hus. He was, a, he was born about 1372 in the southern region of Bohemia um, in the little town of Husnik which translates into um, Goose Town. He was from Goose Town. And uh, this will be significant later. Um, I don't know if I have a slide that just shows Huss's face on there. There it is. Um, <clears throat> uh, Huss trained at the, as a priest at the University of Prague, where his motives were that of comfort living and worldly esteem amongst his peers. Uh, after receiving his master's degree in, in 1396, he joined the faculty there at the university. Now, opposition toward the Roman Catholic Church was already in effect in Bohemia uh, due to the preaching of the Waldensians. So we see these, these pockets of, of these pre-reformers already making movements, and we see these pockets of, of reform happening all throughout Europe. <clears throat> uh, so the stage was already set for someone with the convictions of Huss to come along. Uh, due to the writings of Wycliffe, Huss searched the scriptures himself and found that the church was, in fact, in need of reform. Now, this sounds crazy that, okay, he heard these teachings, and what he did is 
read the scriptures for himself to see if these things were true. Um, and it sounds crazy, like, yeah, why wouldn't he not? He's a professor uh, at the university there in Prague. And, um, but what you have to understand is when you were a student and you were learning, you weren't necessarily learning the scriptures. You were learning what the clergy taught about the scriptures. You were learning about the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church and how those were administered. So, um, but after, after searching the scriptures, he becomes convicted of, of the teachings of Wycliffe, and he began preaching against the corruption of the clergy and the papacy. And his preaching was met with wide acceptance of Bohemia. Um, he also pastored one of the largest and most popular churches in Prague, the Bethlehem Chapel, which sat up to 3,000 people. This is before PA systems, mind you. Um, so what makes Huss so popular was his radical um, form of, of preaching in the language of the people. Uh, instead of in Latin, where no one could understand again, his followers would be um, preaching in the language of the people there in Bohemia, which was widely accepted. Uh, his followers became known as, as Hussites, um, they weren't very creative when it came to their follower names or anything like that. Um, but his uh, view is so in line with the reformers that when we get to the Reformation, Martin Luther is defending himself against a Roman Catholic kind of apologist, a theologian, uh, by the name of uh, Johann Eck. And Luther soundly defeats Eck on, on Scripture. He blows him away. But Eck thinks that he won the debate, mainly because at the end, he tells Luther, your views seem to align with that of Jan Hus. Luther says, with the response, that I am a Hussite. Hus was, uh, at this time, declared a heretic. And so, so Johann Eck says, oh, I want you just said that he is a Hussite, Huss was a heretic, therefore Luther is a heretic. Um, yeah, Huss, Huss criticized the church for idolatrous veneration of Mary and the saints. He, he opposed the common view that the universal church was composed of just the clergy, the popes, the priests, the cardinals, the monks, but did not include the common people. Huss preached that the universal church was composed of all the predestined and redeemed, all true believers, he distinguished between being in the church and being of the church. Uh, that just because one was in the church did not mean that they were a legitimate member of it, and this especially applied to the clergy. He, he like Wycliffe, associated with the popes with Antichrist. He affirmed the headship of Christ over the church rather than the pope, and even went as far to teach that popes and cardinals were not necessary to the church. And again, this is radical uh, teachings. Uh, along with Waldom, Wycliffe, he, he championed what the reformers would later coin sola scriptura. He was very adamant that the visible church was not infallible, nor its post, but scripture alone was the only infallible authority in the life of the church and believer. It was to them that we must, as a church, submit to. Uh, he said, uh, I think there's a quote there, Therefore, faithful Christian, seek truth, listen to truth, learn the truth, love the truth, learn the truth, defend the truth, even to death. Uh, I 
again, an emphasis on the scriptures and the truth and the word of God. Haas' desire to make scripture and his message available to the common people, so he translated sections of the liturgy as well as Latin hymns into vernacular of the, of the common people. Um, Huss was prohibited by the papacy, which he disregarded. Sounds like Luther. Uh, the following year, the Archbishop of Prague excommunicated Huss on grounds of heresy and then quickly fled out of fear of retaliation from the people. So we see the influence that, that Huss had just by proclaiming the word of God. Um, when this had no effect, the papacy placed the entire city of Prague under uh, inter interdict, which is prohibition, uh, forbidding the local clergy to offer sermons and weddings and the Eucharist. Uh, this also had little effect due to Bohemia's king's support of Huss's work. This, however, would change when the king got introduced to the idea of types of indulgences and, and how he can benefit financially from this. So he condemns any preaching against such things. So again, money is influenced here and is a, is a motivator behind some of these uh, rules. Huss uh, spent two years in self-exile writing works that furthered his reforming ideas until 1414 when he was summoned to appear before the Council of Constance to answer against charges of heresy. And Huss thinking, I'm probably not going to come back from this, um, finishes his writings and decides that he, he's going to go. Um, but Huss is given a promise, an empirical promise from the, from the emperor at the time uh, of safe passage, not only to the council, but from it. So safe passage, you won't, you just need to come and give an answer for these charges. So Huss willingly submits the summon, and, and a couple of weeks later, after arriving Constance, uh, he's arrested. Thrown in the dungeon, um, and the dungeon in which he's thrown into is, is not like your typical dungeon. It was one of the worst dungeons, and what made this one worse was that it was um, in line with the city's sewage system. So. For a few months, uh, Huss is, is put in there, uh, in basically next to a sewer, um, and plumbing back then was not quite what it is today. So you can imagine the, the conditions there. And, and the desire was, um, well, hopefully he'll catch something and die and we're done with him. And we could say that we, we kept our promise. You know, we, we, didn't, we didn't kill him. <clears throat> so. Uh, and he doesn't die, he, he, and so then he's later placed in a, uh, a cage, in um, one of those medieval cages like we've seen, that's, it looks basically like a phone booth with iron rods, and it's lifted up and hoisted up, and you're exposed to the elements, whether summer, winter, or whatever, um, and he spends a few months in that. Uh, nine months total is his arrest, and, and he is, not given a fair hearing, uh, he is deemed a heretic, uh, and even though he had been promised safe passage to and from Constance, the cardinal at the time assured the emperor that you do not have to keep promises to heretics. So Huss is taken out and he's burned at the stake. Now, um, there is a there's a legend, and we don't know, we can't validate this, but you know, there's a legend. Um, uh, of Huss at the time of his execution uh, proclaiming 
the statement, today you burn a goose, due to the region from where he was from, uh, the term, you know, the term your goose is cooked comes from Huss's execution. Um, so he says, today you, you cook a goose, or you burn a goose, but in 100 years a swan will arise which you will prove unable to boil or roast. Um, historians believe that Martin Luther's conversion occurred in the year 1550, exactly 100 years after that. Um, and on the coat of the Luther family arms is a swan. So whether that's actually happened or not is up to debate, but nonetheless, it is a cool story. So, um, About 75 years later, in, in uh, 1490, there was a Dominican monk in Florence named uh, Gerolamo Savonrola. I think I actually got that right. Uh, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time with him, but he's a little, he's a less known man, but uh, he is worth mentioning because uh, during his time he witnessed corruption of the Roman influence within the church and clergy and committed the, to the teachings of the truth of the Bible. Savonarola boldly preached the word of God and taught that scripture alone must be the source of all Christian belief and teaching. He denounced the corruption of the church and clergy in his day. His preaching was so bold um, and call people to repentance that he actually gained almost complete influence and rule in the city of Florence. Uh, his moral reforms of Florence transformed the city into a type of mona uh, monastic community and constructed a new democratic con constitution for Florence. Uh, Pope Alexan Alexander VI opposed Savonarola and demanded him to stop preaching, which he refused and called the Pope a servant of Satan. Uh, Savonarola was declared a heretic and sentenced to death, um, and where he was uh, hung, and then his body later burned. Uh, so, what were some of the uh, what were some of the heretical teachings that that he was killed for? He taught free justification through Christ, that the Eucharist should be fully administered to the common people. At this time, he was only really allowed to eat of the bread once a year. He taught that indulgences in, indulg were of no effect and that the Pope was not the head of the church but Christ. Confession to a Pope was not necessary and that the Pope was a type of Antichrist. Uh, sounds very Protestant there. Uh, Italy went on very high alert when it came to the Reformation and made every effort to shut it down. And sadly, Italy remains predominantly Roman Catholic to this day. Um, Savonarola didn't perfectly align with everything reformers, but uh, the point of mentioning him is, is seeing the wheels turning, seeing things being prepped, seeing uh, the gears being greased, uh, first in, in, in France, then in England, and then Prague, and now Italy. Um, these, are, these are pockets of, of small reformations taking place, and this is, you know, Savonarola is 25 years before Luther nails his 95 Thesis to the door in Wittenberg. So, again, God is prepping things and, and getting everything ready for, for the uh, Reformation to take place. So, these little sparks are going out, ready to be set aflame. Um, so, uh, along with these pockets of reform came another instrumental movement uh, that not many people are, are familiar with, <clears throat> but it is, it is very pivotal in setting the stage for the Reformation. Uh, and it is, it is a movement called uh, humanism. 
And we don't want to confuse this term with, with today's humanism that exalts man and kind of the new atheist thing and Richard Dawkins kind of stuff. Uh, humanism at this time was a recovery of the humanities, the, the great antiquities of, of ancient times, ancient Greece and Rome. These humanists, as it would be later referred to as, uh, saw the civilization of ancient Greece and Rome um, as, as the golden age uh, of, of art and philosophy and theater and education. Uh, these were the golden age of human culture that gets lost during the Dark Ages, during the Middle Ages there. Um, during that time, the medieval mindset was that of, of asceticism and, and poverty, avoidance of all types of indulgences uh, and all joys of life. Um, during the Middle Ages, there's no emphasis on, on the beauties of life, and, and that is surely depicted upon, I don't know if you, you know, if I'm, if I'm looking at artwork, um, I, I can pretty much tell if, if something was painted during the, the Middle Ages, uh, the Dark Ages. It's very gloomy and, and dark colors. You have uh, the cathedrals with the gargoyle, very gothic things like that. So um, this is depicted in, in, in artwork. Uh, uh, philosophy gets lost, you know, theater gets lost, you know, poetry, all these things um, go by the wayside. And the, these humanists you know, were um, bringing those, those things back into society, bringing those things back into, hum, uh, into the culture. <clears throat> uh, their commitment to human culture was seen as part of the Christian worldview, which saw a God-given meaning and value in this present life as well as in the life to come. And, and you see this uh, rising interest into the things that are old, um, and, and emphasis on, on studying the classics. So you, you have Aristotle and Plato, these things kind of coming back and resurfacing into the culture. But with this was a rediscovery of the biblical text in its original Greek and Hebrew language. And, and this is so instrumental. Uh, humanism emphasized the need to study the Bible in its original language as well as the early church fathers. Uh, and this mindset was summarized by the Latin phrase ad fontes, which, bat, which means back to the sources. So they, they saw value in, in the original and in, in the old. And so um, they, they start studying for the first time and said, instead of the Latin Vulgate, they study the scriptures from its original language, the Greek and the Hebrew. Uh, these humanists were highly influential in regards to the scholastic environment. Um, one humanist champion of Afontes was a German professor at Basel and later Heidelberg named uh, Johann Reuchlin. And his emphasis was the recovery of the study of the Old Testament in Hebrew. Um, he was kind of the pioneer in that, that you know, even though there were some, sometimes they would go back to the Greek, uh, study the Greek, uh, the idea of studying the, the Old Testament in Hebrew was, was vastly lost at this time. And, and Reuschland brings this idea of we have to study these things in the language that they were wrote. We gotta make sure that what we're reading and what we're teaching is what the writers originally wrote. So <clears throat> he, he championed that. Um, another humanist worth mentioning was a French scholar by the name of uh, Jacques Le Fier. I don't know how to, maybe Phil can help you out that. He was, a, he was a humanist, but I, I would say that all these men were types of, of pre-reformers themselves. 
Uh, he held to the principles that paralleled with the reformers, such as sola fide, sola dea gloria, sola scriptura, by my faith alone, for the glory of God alone, by scriptures alone. Um, he desired to reform the church without separating it from it. Uh, he was a great influence on none other than John Calvin. Uh, he met with Calvin in 1533 and continued to meet with him on several other occasions. And his greatest contribution was his translation of the Bible from the original language, the Greek language and Hebrew, into the French language. So <clears throat> very instrumental. Um, John Collette is another humanist uh, from England, worth mentioning, um, but mainly because of his greatest influence was upon a, a student who would later be called the prince of the humanists. And uh, our last pre-reformer that we will examine today, uh, Desiderius Erasmus of Rotterdam. Um, in England, he studied Greek classics under Collette, uh, and Erasmus later taught at the University of Cambridge where he mastered the Greek New Testament his writings, Praise and Folly, was a, was a work that attacked Roman Catholic traditions and popular superstitions of the day, such as indulgences, biblical ignorance of the, uh, of the clergy, which what Luther championed on. He, uh, that's Erasmus, by the way. <clears throat> um, he, the clergy were ignorant of the word of God. They, they knew of the traditions, and that was it. They were more like politicians. They were more like businessmen more than anything. So he, he really hammered them on their ignorance. Uh, in 1518, he wrote the, the Novum Testamentum, which was a Greek New Testament uh, with, with his commentary. And he, what he basically did was take all the Greek manuscripts and the original Greek manuscripts that he had at this time, and he, he looked at them and, and composed what was the closest to the original that that all of them coincided with. So he, <clears throat> he writes this, this Novum Testamentum, and it becomes instrumental because uh, he exposed some translation errors in the Latin Vulgate. And this contribution would be vital in the debates that lay ahead of the Reformers. Uh, this Greek New Testament would become the foundation that, that is used by Luther to translate the German New Testament in 1522 and also used by Tyndale to translate the English New Testament in 1525. So this work alone uh, that, that Erasmus does is so pivotal, so instrumental in the, the Reformers' efforts in getting the New Testament, getting the Word of God into the hands of the people and from its original language. <clears throat> um, uh, more than anything, Erasmus aligned with Luther in the belief that, that the Bible belonged to everyone, including common people. He said, uh, quote there, only a very few can be learned, but all can be Christian. Um, all can be devout, and I shall boldly add, all can be theologians. Um, uh, so again, um, I have some more quotes from him too. But uh, again, we have the, the word of God being sought out, rediscovered, and translated into the vernacular, into the, the uh, people's language. Um, now, some might disagree with my listing of Erasmus as, as a, as a pre-reformer. Um, he kind of sometimes gets a bad rap because um, he's called some names by Luther, not very nice names, and him and Luther um, uh, disagreed a lot in, in terms of the sovereignty of God and the salvation of his people. 
But nevertheless, he was a key figure in paving the way for men like Luther to stand up against the Catholic Church. And not to mention, he co coined one of the greatest philo philosophical truths ever. Um, it was him that said, women can't live with them, can't live without them. I didn't know that. <clears throat> um, Spear was with this man. <laughs> when it came to the Reformation, his contemporaries charged him with, with laying the egg that Luther hatched. Um, and like I said, he gets kind of a bad rap, but, but he was an admirer of Luther, an encouragement of, uh, to him. Uh, he said to Luther's opponents, by burning Luther's books, you may rid your bookshelves of him, but you will not rid men's minds of him. So uh, again, he was an encouragement and, and um, loved Luther. Uh, despite Erasmus' views uh, aligning with much of the reformers, he felt that Luther's idea of reform was too radical and believed him to be divisive. Uh, he never left the Catholic Church, and this bothered Luther, and this is why he had such a problem with him, um, and why he was also never deemed a heretic or was excommunicated, um, although he most likely would have been. And plus, they had bigger fish to fry with Luther. Um, but he, he said, I, I, I quote, I, I put up with this church in the hope that one day it will become better, just as it is constrained to put up with me uh, in the hope that I will become better. So he had a, a love for the church, and, and we see this in, in some of the pre-reformers. They, they <clears throat> didn't want to break away from, from the Roman Catholic Church. They just wanted it to, to change, to reform from the inside out. Um, but uh, their resistance to the clear teachings of Scripture uh, made this impossible, as we'll see in, in the coming weeks. So those are the pre-reformers. And as I was, I actually got the bulk of this sermon done somewhat early, and you know, a work event, um, <clears throat> and I got to the, the application, and I'm like, Okay, what's the application here? Um, don't be Roman Catholic? Uh, like, uh, you know, so uh, I, you know, learn, learn Greek and Hebrew, guys. That's the, uh, uh, I, I, I really struggled with, with the um, application when it, when it comes to this. You know, so when you're doing a, a lecture series, things like that, it, it does um, make it difficult. But, you know, I do want to say that I never assume, whenever I'm speaking, that I'm speaking to a room full of believers. And that would be wrong for me to assume. Um, and to the unbeliever that may be here this morning, the, the Roman Catholic Church was apostate because it neglected the Word of God and its teachings. It elevated man-made traditions over the Word of God, making man the ultimate authority. They had now, uh, they had no problem saying that this was, was important. They had no problem saying that, you know, it did bear some weight, but not above their man-made traditions. <clears throat> this is made obvious by the way the church was lived out during this time. And sadly, lived out today. Some of you today may have the appearance of godliness, but you deny its power. 
You likewise have, have no problem saying that this book is important. That uh, you may even affirm its truth. But likewise, it bears no authority in your life. <clears throat> for you are uh, reserved that for yourself, for your own man-made tradition. For you are the ultimate authority in your life. And you care not for the things of God. And to you I say, repent. And to cast aside your pride and submit to the authority revealed in his word. And seek him while he may be found. For the rest of us this morning, if you would turn your Bibles over to, to the book of 2 Timothy. And we're going to be just kind of quickly, not going through completely. I just want to kind of touch on some things here. Second uh, Timothy chapter three here. Uh, in the second epistle to his protege Timothy, the apostle Paul gives final instructions as he is he is nearing the end of his life. And in chapter three, he says, "And in the last days there will be those who will be lovers of self." Verse two. And that even though they will have the appearance of godliness, they deny its power. That is, they, they truly don't believe in its power. They don't follow it. There's no rule of it in their lives. Verse, um, verse 5. And there will be those that rise up, even within the church, who will oppose its truth. And that's what the Reformation is all about. Uh, that's verse 8 there. And there will be those that that will bring persecution to Timothy and any believers who adhere to its truth. And what is Paul's advice to this young pastor at this time? A 10-step program for effective church ministry? Verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned, and have firmly believed, knowing from who you've learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Therefore, Paul goes on to say in chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. The Apostle Paul is essentially saying, Timothy, you're going to have some hard times ahead of you. There will be those who will deny the word of God, who will oppose the word of God. Give it to them anyways. You're going to have persecution that's going to come. Stick with the word. He's saying, this is all you need, Timothy. As you shepherd your flock, this, this book, it is your shepherd's staff in which you are to lean on. It is the staff that you are to lead your flock with. 
It is a staff in which you are to use to ward off the wolves who might come amongst your flock. And it is a staff that you might have to gently use to, to correct those in your flock who go astray. Stick to the word. And this parallels so perfectly from what we are, we are reading and learning in 1 Corinthians, is it not? The Corinthian believers are, are saying, okay, we got the gospel, we got the preaching and all that. You know, we need to look outside. We need to look to man. Look to man-made wisdom and traditions to make us wise. You know, we need to move beyond the gospel. And what does Paul say? What is Paul's uh, uh, instructions to them? He points them right back to this. Right back to Scripture. He says, no, 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 you don't move past this. You continue to grow in your knowledge of it. Why? Because all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You know, we may hear of men like Wycliffe and John Huss and, and, and Luther and Calvin and, and all these, and then Knox, and, and we may think to ourselves, wow, those are great men. Well, God, I can see why God used these guys. They were educated. They were giants. But I'm no theologian. I'm not educated in these things. That's great for them. That's great for those types of people but not for me. I'll just sit back and I'll wait. But we must remember the Reformation was the result of the Word of God being rediscovered and then translated into the language of the common people. <clears throat> this cannot be overstated, people. This cannot be overstated. It was not the boldness of Martin Luther or the intellect of John Calvin, nor the preaching of John Knox that brought about the Reformation. It was the Word of God getting into the hands of ordinary people that challenged and triumphed over the most powerful system in the world at that time. Martin Luther, toward the end of his life, recounting his part of the Reformation, simply stated, I simply taught. I preached wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then, when I slept or, or drank Wittenberg beer with my friend Philip of Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word of God did it all. End quote. It was Ordinary people who have been exposed and changed by the power of this book that lays in your hands this morning. It was that that brought about the Reformation. And Christians today, they're always talking about the need for, for another Reformation, as if the first one ended. You know, well, we need another big Reformation, another big revival. Uh, <clears throat> But as we saw today, the Reformation was not something that happened overnight, immediately at a, at a national level. But true reform, true revival, only happens on a national level like it did when it first happens at a local level. It only happens at a local level 
if it happens at a church congregational level. And that only happens when it first happens at an individual level. And none of that happens if the pages of this book remain closed by those who should cherish it the most. Nothing else has the power to reveal man's greatest problem and greatest hope. For in these pages, we see all like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way, Isaiah 53, 6. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23. And we were dead in our trespasses, Colossians 2, 13. For the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. And we're therefore by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love in which he loved us, even we were, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. And when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons, Galatians 4, 4 through 5. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Romans 8, 3 through 4. And for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, and he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with those Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 1, 3. So that for you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, so that you will be saved. Acts 16, 31. For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 9. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ. And Jesus formed the law of sin and death. These are the words they heard. This is the power of God revealed in his word in the hands of his people that brought forth light in this darkest hour. All those years ago and is doing so today. Now may we this morning go forth in the week to come encouraged in knowing that we have been equipped with everything we need to likewise proclaim this truth right here. And may these pages remain open to you always so that we may likewise fulfill all call to preach his word and do the work of an evangelist. For all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Amen.